Hello, everybody. I'm Dwayne Mancini, and welcome to another episode of the Project MedTech Podcast. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com or follow us on LinkedIn. If you're enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcast by searching MedTech Money on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. MedTech Money is an interview style podcast focused on demystifying, raising and investing capital for MedTech startups. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Rook Quality System. Why Rook? Because getting a medical device to market is complex, not unlike a game of chess. There are as many moving parts as there are pieces on a chessboard. You need the perfect strategy and tactics, and that begins with your very first move. That's why at Rook, their mantra is make every move count. They may not be experts in the queen's gambit, but they are experts in quality and regulatory strategy for both emerging and established medical device companies. If you need to comply with regulations in domestic and international markets and time is of the essence, don't make a move without Rook. Check them out at rookqs.com. In this episode, our guest, Joseph Okanu, and I discuss his current fund called Verge Health Tech Fund, what sucks in healthcare right now that could be fixed with technology, sick care versus healthcare, global healthcare access, what it truly means to be an impact investor, how an impact fund looks at opportunities versus a typical venture group, entrepreneurship and how it is viewed around the world, picking the right partners for a startup, and so much more. So without further ado, my discussion with Joseph Mukano. Medical innovation starts with medical discussion. Talking about the future and what comes next with Project MedTech. Okay, Joseph, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks so much, Dwayne, for having me. Yeah, so so let's start with just a brief introduction to um, who you are and what you do. Sure. So I'm an early stage venture capitalist. I only invest in healthcare technologies, and I came across this industry by just seeing a, a lot of problems that existed in, in, in the backyard of where I live and a desire to support founders that wanted to do something about it. And not having any really clever ideas of my own. Yeah. So, um, what what is the what is the fund that you is it? Is, so you you're the founding founding partner, managing partner. Yep. Yep. Um, but you know, can't do this alone. Uh, have yeah. a team. It was initially a very small team, and and thankfully now it is it is growing in size as we scale our ambitions to do more in the in the same space. Um, Great. And what's the name of the fund? Oh, sorry, it's called Verge Health Tech Fund. Okay, perfect, perfect. Um, and and you're located in 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 Singapore. Um, is is are you only investing in companies out of Singapore, or are you investing in in companies all over? Uh, we're we're investing all over the world, and in okay. fact, we have invested across thirteen countries uh, so far. Cool. Okay. How big, how big is the fund? Is this your first fund? Uh, it is, it is our first fund. So it's, uh, okay. it's quite small and, and modest in size. However, I do feel we've been able to do quite a bit with it so far. We, we invested okay. in 
you know, the earliest stages of, of 15 companies, and we've already impacted over 6 million lives with that. Wow. Okay. So you're, you're investing in like seed stage capital. Yeah. yeah. Or okay. even, even before that, cause I mean, it's funny having just gone to the U S uh, you know, late last year, I learned that, you know, seed is no longer one category or size. You have mango seeds, you have avocado seeds, you have chia seeds. And, you know, I, I don't, I, I guess we're poppy seeds. Okay. Chia seeds are expensive. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, you're spot on with that. We've noticed that with a, a lot of our, um, a lot of our clients are calling things seed rounds and, and they're either further than we thought, or, you know, they're more of like a friends and family round, right. That they've somehow classified as a seed. So yeah, that makes, makes a lot of sense. Um, so we have a whole series dedicated to, um, uh, raising and investing capital. And that's our med tech money side. But 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 I actually wanted to have you on this one to kind of talk about, you know, what do you see as as big areas coming up? I mean, what what's what's exciting in health tech for you? Are there some areas that that you're particularly looking at right now? Uh, there there are. I wouldn't maybe exciting isn't the right word when I think about these things. It's more about mm -hmm. Um, to, to, to borrow a phrase from, uh, you know, a, a VC I look up to, it's like, what sucks, like what sucks <laughs> in healthcare that yeah. could be fixed with technology at a large and systematic scale. That's, that's one of the things that I, that I, I try to really address. And, and so does the team. So for example, why do you have to go to the hospital for a small thing? Or why does a doctor have to be the one that, you know, takes your pulse and other vital signs? Why, you know, why do you have to have all your information fragmented across all these different silos when it's just you, you are the person, mm -hmm. you are the patient. So we really look for things that try to, you know, separate data collection from decision-making. We look for things that try to detect whether there's something amidst very early and we invest in things and we, and we're excited by things that keep you healthy as well. So we, we, we think about the application of technology to health and care as opposed to health care, because by the time you need health care, you're, you're not healthy, it's sick care. And I'm sure these are very cliched terms, but we, you know, they're cliched because they're true and they're pervasive. So we, we, we try to look for things that reverse or preempt the current system. And in the case where we do do look for things that fit within the current system, how do we make it, you know, 10 times faster, better, or cheaper? Mm -hmm. So this, yeah, so the, the sick care comment has been made by almost, almost every physician who has been on the podcast so far. Um, when, and, and, and really actually that they, they, they've primarily focused on that when they're discussing the U S healthcare system. Um, and, and I think, uh, you know, that's, that's their own experiences. Right. Um, but, but yeah, this is, this is interesting. So you don't have a therapeutic area that, that maybe necessarily excites you the most. Cause I think sometimes, um, I, I, I think when I've seen, when I've talked to different VCs or, or investors in general, some are like, well, we, we really like cardiovascular. We really like mm -hmm. neuro, we really like this. And then others are like, yeah, actually if they check 
team and problem and excitement level and 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 uh ventures a uh, university hospitals ventures here in cleveland their venture group has a spicy model and that's how they evaluate technology they really don't care about therapeutic area mm-hmm. theirs is just whether the investment is spicy enough right and so i it's all i always like comparing those those two like theses i guess of of some people are like, hey, I don't really care about the therapeutic area as long as it's exciting and impactful, right? Um, is, so I'm taking it that's how, kind of how you are then. Uh, with, with the slight nuance of, okay, is it something we have the ability to value add or have, you know, above normal ability to understand the disease mm-hmm. journey? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, so I, I'm biased towards imaging technologies. Okay. Um, you know, we're as a team biased towards chronic, you know, non-communicable diseases like diabetes mm-hmm. or Alzheimer's or hypertension or hypolipidemia and others. And, you know, we're also biased towards looking for things that can make a difference in cancer. And unfortunately, we haven't found anything compelling enough to invest in yet out of our first fund, but that doesn't mean we're not interested in the area. I mean, I, I was a PhD working on new cancer therapies and it is truly the emperor of maladies um so we we look for really big health problems and if we have an edge by which we can you know be a better investor than average in that space then that's something that excites us and it's still you know you know problem team solution governance do we get along with the founders um Mm -hmm. sorry that was a long answer to a very quick question (laughs) no um and 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 so you mentioned it, you, you said you, your first fund. So is that fund closed? Are you on to a second fund or, or no? Yeah, we pretty much spent it all. It, it uh, okay. closed a few years ago and now we're, we're looking to yeah. see if we can take the lessons that we have learned and mm-hmm. the ambitions that we have and apply it to scale. Yeah. What's it, what's it like being an early stage investor? Um, with a global focus. Um, I'm curious, just, you know, a lot of the people, again, I don't host, I don't ask a lot of those questions because generally the investors are on our med tech money side. Um, but, but, you know, from editing all of them, you learn a lot about them. And a lot of early stage investors are, are generally like pretty geographically focused, even like specifically in the US, right? You might have an angel group who only invests in Ohio companies or California companies or Midwest or East Coast, West Coast, right? So, but for you, you're early stage and you're going across 13 different countries, right? So what, what has that been like? What have you learned from that? Um, I'm oh. curious, are, 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 are the investors that were in your fund, are they mostly in Singapore or are they all over as well? I mean, this is pretty unique. So I'm curious. Yeah, to, to be frank, um, if I were to find a fund that did this, before I started, I would have sent my CV. And the only reason that I started this fund is because I couldn't find any that were doing this. Okay. Yeah. And so I, I stumbled across this approach by accident as an angel investor where, you know, I started investing next to my backyard, you know, I was investing in Singapore and the Philippines and in, in Taiwan. And then I, I ran out of companies that I thought were really exciting. They didn't come to me at a velocity that, um, you know, kept me, kept me busy enough. You know, they say about the devil in idle hands. Right. So I, I had, um, luckily I had my wife who was less busy than I was at the time. I was working pretty intensely as a management consultant and, and she started 
you know, going to tech conferences all around the world and seeing what exists outside of Southeast Asia. And lo and behold, we found some really interesting companies, which we then uh, decided to angel invest in, one of which we were the very first investor of and is actually the most successful out of all our angel investor investments today. And so that opened up the horizon of global investing, and that's indeed possible to do it. I wouldn't say it's easy or else everyone would be doing it, but I think that it it fits it fits our team. It fits you know our experience, our network. We do have friends all around the world. And we further look to de-risk investments by investing with people that we know who are on the ground or um, having advisors or, or board members that could also pitch in that are that are locally there on the ground who can understand the local nuances and business practices. One of the other things that you can do to de-risk a global investment strategy is to uh, try to redomicile companies that are in more risky geographies or less familiar geographies to ones that you are more familiar with. So at least you, you know, have the local laws and regulations. You know, the the money and the IP can be stored kind of more safely. Uh, th- those are those are the key things. Then the fundamental philosophy around this is, look, um, just because the problems are in your backyard doesn't mean that the best solutions necessarily also exist in your backyard. So can you arbitrage, you know, opportunities from other parts of the world, which may actually be at a much better valuation to, you know, the markets where they're most needed and appreciated. So it's it's a confluence of factors that led us to the global investment model. It is not a popular one. It is one also that a lot of, you know, a lot of investors don't believe in. Uh, can, can be done, especially at the early stages. But I've, I've seen, you know, plenty of examples including my own personal examples where in fact it can work. So that gave us confidence to try this out on a, on a professional scale. Uh, and then to address your question about where our investors are from, they are all over the place. That's cool. That's really cool. Awesome. Um, okay. So I'm going to pivot a little bit um, because I, I want to talk a little bit about, I might say that for the end, actually, just in terms of you've been around a lot of early stage startups, you know, what are some of the things that the successful ones do? What are some of the common pitfalls you see? But 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 first, I I, I do want to talk a little bit about global healthcare access and, mm. and the barriers that you see to this. Um, and so, you know, you have a unique perspective on this and probably since we've started the podcast might have the the most relevant experience to this. So I'd be curious on your thoughts on, on, on this topic. Oh, how to sum up 190 plus countries into, <laughs> no, just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> I, I, th- I think there, there, there are some universal themes and fundamentally it's a mismatch of healthcare demand and supply. And the root causes of that mismatch are different in every country. Um, part of it is driven by underinvestment. Part of it is driven by poor policy. Part of it is driven by business model, affordability, or simply, you know, rapid growth that is usually a good thing. But if you don't have the supply to match that growth, it can very quickly become a bad thing. So that's that's the universal thing where you, you just don't have enough doctors or hospitals or clinics to serve the population's that need them. And, and, and look, this, this is different for different reasons. So I like to use an example of this Google Maps of this 200 meter by 200 meter, or I guess, uh, let's say 800 by 800 feet view of Beverly Hills. 
and you have all these doctors, right? And, you know, if you go with a sore throat to that particular part of town, they're not going to be able to help you. Plenty of doctors, very concentrated, but they're all plastic surgeons. Right. And then, right, right. That's a big problem. <laughs> yeah. Or, or, or yeah. similarly, you know, you might have some really great doctors in Bangkok, right? Thailand. Yep. But if you're located 200 kilometers to the Northeast, you might have to drive those 200 kilometers to go to Bangkok to see the right kind of doctor that you're looking for. And that's assuming you have like adequate infrastructure, but the distribution relevance is different. Then you have countries where you simply just do not have enough doctors. Like, you know, per, per capita, like the Philippines has 10 times fewer, at least radiologists than say America. Okay. Uh, per capita. So there's all sorts yeah. of different issues. And then, and then finally, sorry, just to continue the thought. Yeah. Yep. When your population is aging rapidly and developing a multitude of chronic diseases simultaneously, then even if you had enough doctors that worked, you know, say five years ago, five years from now, you don't. Mm -hmm. And those doctors retire too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This is, um, this is interesting. I mean, it just as, as I look to, um, commercialization strategy for early stage startup companies, so I'm relating it to that. Right. And they're looking at different countries to go after, I, how do you, how do you walk them through, you know, that kind of process, right? Like if you're a U.S. based company, you commercialize your product in the U.S. and then, and then it, it seems like the, it's the same conversation every time. And I'm not sure, like, other than the fact that China, Japan, Europe are like the next biggest healthcare markets, everyone just says, well, that's where I'm going to go next. And, and the only logic behind that is, well, they, they're, they're, the amount of people, the population, right? It's a big market. I, I guess what, what, what I'm asking is, is there some strategy behind maybe saying, well, hey, we'll just take Singapore. Maybe Singapore is in desperate need of this kind of solution. And I know China has more people, but the need here might be an easier hurdle to, to get in. I mean, is that some of the thought process that you kind of have your startups that you invest in take as well? Uh, I, I want to give a very awful answer of it depends. Yeah. Um, okay. It depends what motivates you. It depends how complicated the solution is. It depends what the business model of the preferred business model of the company is. It depends on so many different factors, regulatory requirements, regimes. So, you know, you can, you can have a country that has an immense need for a solution, but if the regulatory approval process takes three years, you're probably as a startup who counts, you know, your lifespan in, in months before the next funding round, not going to put a lot of attention there. And, and similarly, a lot of American companies, like if you're going for maximum revenue or rather, let's put it this way, maximum profit, because you can get a lot of revenue and, and, and not make a lot of profit. Why would you ever leave the U.S.? I mean, the U.S. is responsible for 55% of the world's healthcare spend for only 4% of the population. I mean, the state of Kansas spends more on healthcare for its roughly 2 million people than the entire country of the Philippines with 107 million people. 
why would you ever leave if profit is your motivation? Mm-hmm. If impact is your motivation, then of course you would leave. And right. you know, the one investment that we do have in the US is also launching in India because 1.4 billion people um, seen the pollution levels lately. That's yep. creating a bit of that's creating a bit of healthcare problems, which this particular con- company can can you know help address. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a couple things there. Uh, the first thing is I wasn't aware of those stats, um, and those are that's that's insane and really highlights some of the issues with the U.S. healthcare system. Um, second thing is the it depends answer is probably my favorite answer on the podcast. And and we get it a lot. And I, generally, I ask questions that intentionally will draw that out. It depends is great, because what these startups need is not some, well, you always look at this, but what is what are you th- what, what's going through your mental checklist when you're evaluating this? And then how do they incorporate that into their problem? So I think that answer is fantastic. It depends is great, <laughs> because oh, we get a little we get a little peek into okay, oh, I didn't think about that endpoint, or I didn't think about that checkbox, right? So so I think that's that's um, really helpful. So just to, I know I'm kind of circling back. So you're considered an impact fund then, correct? Uh, yeah, it's it's interesting okay. because we don't, we don't really have any impact investors on our cap table, like maybe one or two mm-hmm. that yeah. um, really even remotely associate themselves with impact. I think, you know, I don't know if it was a dirty word when we were trying to fundraise or if the typical, you know, impact investor was more focused on the E and the G above the S, um, in, mm-hmm. you know, environment, you know, uh, sustainability and governance. Um, but for, for whatever reason, we are very much in spirit and impact fund. We even call ourselves that. Um, but it seems we don't really resonate with impact investors which is, is paradoxical. Maybe, maybe, you know, four years later from when we started, the, the world has moved and maybe it will. Okay. Interesting. Um, okay. So let's talk a little bit. Well, you've kind of mentioned it, I guess, throughout the podcast so far, right? Is, is you're looking for, you know, things that will alleviate human capital gaps and in early stage health tech and, and whatnot. Um, for and and then you also mentioned about doctors being in the right spot but but the other topic we had discussed previously was medical devices to do healthcare screening in rural communities um and i'm guessing that's globally yeah. rural communities right i think you know oftentimes when we hear the podcast <clears throat> you know we're a lot of my guests a lot of my guests are probably, uh, I guess, U.S. based. Uh, my listeners, listen, listening wise, sixty percent are in the U.S., forty percent are are outside. Um, so, so rural communities in general. So, so what kind of? Um, so, is this where you're talking about maybe some of that remote patient monitoring yeah. and diagnostic tools? Okay, so that's what you're kind of looking for. Yeah, absolutely, there. it's the separation. And and sorry if it's a little bit of a kind of a facetious term, but the separation of you know, data collection and decision-making, that is, mm-hmm. that is exactly it. I mean, the idea of collecting clinical grade telemetry that you can make a real decision on, but don't necessarily have to be in the same room, city, mm-hmm. county, or continent. Yeah. So, 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 so Joseph, how do you, how do you fight 
there's a lot of cool technologies that do this. And the number one kickback I even get from, so I'm, I'm 32. And so I have a, a, some friends who just finished, you know, their residency, their fellowship and the way they were trained in medical school, right. From the, their, 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 the other physicians, the big thing is I can have my hands on the patient. I can have my hands on the patient. So how do you, how do you work with that? when you know some of the people you're trying to maybe sell your technology to or need product adoption for are physicians who were clinically trained that well in order to make a really good decision i got to have my hands on the patient yeah that's that's a really good question um first there are medical disciplines where you never touch the patient right radiology pathology mm -hmm. those are those are definitely ones where you never use your direct senses to make a decision so those are low-hanging fruits um, another one is, all right, it would, it would be great to make a decision if I had my hands on the patient, but my patient's not here. Do I have a choice? Um, another one is, can I use a device myself on a patient, but gives me superhuman senses. And then once I'm comfortable with that, maybe I'd be comfortable if someone else collected that data. Mm-hmm. So it could be, yeah. it could be, it could be incremental. We, we, we firmly believe in not trying to disrupt clinical practice too much. In fact, I, I find that I'm allergic to the word disrupt when used in a healthcare context. I think what we want to do is we want to make doctors superhuman. We want to make sure that a hundred percent of their time is having their brain make clinical decisions. Mm -hmm. So for example, if a doctor is, you know, cutting and pasting some information or transferring a patient record or image from one location to another or typing notes out or commuting that's all time that they're not making clinical decisions if a doctor is seeing a bunch of normal patients which could have been ruled out by nurses or algorithms mm -hmm. that's time that they're not making you know good clinical decisions I heard a, a crazy stat, but I haven't been able to reproduce it or, or find it anywhere else where 90% of dermatology visits are for, you know, clinically insignificant things. So imagine if you had a dermatologist shortage and you got rid of all the normals, suddenly your shortage becomes a surplus because your dermatologists are 10 times more useful if they're only diagnosing things that are clinically relevant. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's so much, there's so much low hanging fruit here that doesn't disrupt fundamentally the way the doctors do medicine. Yeah. Is this kind of that push towards value-based care? It could be, it could okay. be, um, value-based care can mean, you know, you treat and track the patient definitively so they don't come back and incur additional costs. Um, if you are in a capitated model, that is certainly going to move the needle because if you're in charge of, you know, a roster of 5,000 patients and you only ever need to see like 90% less of them, or you spend 90% less time on each of them because you don't have to walk through all the motions of all this because you already have all their, you know, uh, telemetry in front of you and you can monitor them or check in with them asynchronously, then that saves a tremendous amount of time. You know, this is an area where telemedicine could be really important if telemedicine had better telemetry and if it wasn't just a glorified Skype call uh, or, mm -hmm. or something akin to what we're having today. You can ask me some yes, no questions, maybe allow me to describe stuff, maybe look at my rash or something. Um, 
but you can't get my heart rate. You mm -hmm. can't get my HRV. You can't get my SpO2. You can't get my lung sounds. Um, so there, there, there are a lot of things that we can we can do to, you know, increase the efficiency, thus cost savings, thus value of of healthcare. Yeah, is this, is this also kind of pushed down the track of like um, owning your own health data, like as a patient? Oh, uh, this is another. It depends because. Yeah, you have cultural and political differences across all countries. Mm -hmm. You have some countries that are very privacy individually focused, where owning all of your own data would be fantastic. And in fact, it's mandated. You have other countries where your individuality is more or less irrelevant and all your data is the state's data. Mm -hmm. Um there, there, there's probably a trend where, you know, you would have access to all of your data and you have the ability to share it in the former case. In the latter case, yeah, it's the state's data, but you can look at it and mm -hmm. you can perhaps act on it before the state needs to take res responsibility for it. So I think it's in the best interest of both models for the data to have, you know, the ability to be either owned or accessed in its entirety by patients. Uh, with, with, of course, the caveat that, you don't want to present a bunch of data without context because suddenly every patient's going to be Dr. Google and, you know, maybe get a little bit hypochondriac when they see that this data could mean 25 different diseases potentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is really interesting. Cause I think about it, you know, like I wear this whoop band, right. And I have access to all this information, right. You mentioned <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, HRV and heart rate and SPO2 and, and all these different things. And it's like, well, I wonder, you know, like my doctor doesn't see any of that. Yeah. And they should. That's interesting. They right. should, because one yeah. of the, one of the challenges, like all these things, when you take a blood test, like you see, oh, this is a normal range, right. And, and you're sitting here. Does that mean that you're abnormal or is that normal for you? And until we have a baseline mm -hmm. of what is normal for you, then it's really difficult to tell because it may very well be normal for you, um, even though it's looking like you know, it's two, two standard deviations away from what the reference population uh, you know, has. It's just mm -hmm. an average. It's not an average of you know, everyone they've looked at previously and determined that you know, this, is, this is normal for people. But people are not all the same. Right. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, and the other thing that scares me about um, uh, blood tests is they're just a snapshot in time. Mm. Right. And I think about how much my uh, blood work changes depending on, I mean, I fast every day, but oh, very good. Um, yeah, but, 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 but also though, like just like what I had the night before and, or the day before the, the, the stress I was under, I mean, it's just, it's crazy how much it changes. So, or if you bumped um, your kidney on the corner of a table. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Doesn't yeah. happen every day, but you know that yeah. would spike your uh, your kidney markers potentially. <laughs> right. 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 Um, awesome. Okay. So you've been around a lot of startups, especially in the health tech space. Um, what are those common, like, hey, ever you know, every investment we make, you know, they 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 check this box, and then I'd love to hear about pitfalls that, you know, they don't have to be common. They could be the ones that like, just people aren't aware of, but we always ask about pitfalls because, um, 
I know it's a little negative, but, but it's just best if, you know, if you're an entrepreneur listening in and you can go, Oh, wow. I didn't even think of that. I should watch out for that. That'd be a, that'd be a good one. Start there. So things that are in common, everyone has to be solving a big problem. Um, everyone has to be doing it for the right reason. And this isn't necessarily a, a predictor of success. It's just a alignment with our philosophy. We look for missionaries more than we look for mercenaries. And so if there's, if there's like a deep passion for the particular problem, then that's really important. Uh, even better if there's a personal connection to the problem and even better if there's a personal connection to the expertise of the status quo and how to change it. Uh, we look for clinical, technical, and commercial experience. Um, we have to have at least two of the three and a path to getting the third one, ideally all three. And, you know, we have to be useful. We have to see, is there a way that we can be useful? Otherwise all money is green. You know, what's, what's our edge. We ask the, we ask the startups, like what's their edge. Of course, that's important, but what's our edge in, in, in this particular case. And well, common pitfalls, there aren't common pitfalls. I'll give one common one, I guess. You have to be an optimist to start a company. I've, I've rarely ever met a pessimist quit their stable job and start a company, especially in places where right. there is no security, you know, social security or safety net, right? Some of these founders, they don't, they don't have rich parents. They can go, they don't even have like, you know, moderate power, moderately wealthy parents and they can go live in their basements. No, like some of these people, if, if they fail, that's it. That's mm -hmm. it. And then a lot of countries, they don't really have this tolerance for failure that Americans do where, you know, it's like, all right, you've tried, you failed, go try again. You know, you've learned something, go try again. In some countries, especially in the East, if you fail, like you're a loser. Yeah. And, and, and people don't want to talk to you anymore. Um, so, hmm. so as a result of this, you have to be really optimistic and determined to be a founder. However, optimism rubs both ways. Because when, when things are tough or it's difficult to raise investment, um, maybe the founder doesn't realize this and they get really encouraged by saying, oh, the investor took a call and listened to my pitch. Yeah, we're going to get it. And then a hundred knows later and, you know, running out of money, they're, they're, they're like, oh crap, what do I do? And sometimes right. their optimism prevents them from acknowledging that there's a problem and, and, and reaching out to their, you know, their supporters to, to get help in a timely manner. So I think, you know, optimism runs both ways. Um, Another one is, and, and this is a really difficult one to try to gauge and maybe even bordering inappropriate, but when you invest in a founder, you're, you're investing in their family, you're investing in their lives, you're investing in everything because they're, they're putting everything on it. And, you know, sometimes there are sources of anxiety and pressure that are extraneous to the startup itself that may contribute to the startup having difficulties or failing. And those are almost impossible to diligence. And it's difficult to ask those questions, but sometimes just spending enough time, you can, with, with the founder in a very variety of different circumstances, um, can give you hints as to what is the foundation by which they are building the startup on. Um, and, you know, it's one that's, it should be obvious, but it's not obvious. And it's one that's really difficult to test. Yeah. Yeah. Those are, those are really good ones. Um, you know, the optimism one, I, I see, I guess I wasn't aware of the, the, 
cultural difference as well, right? Um, in the East versus the West, because I think you're right, you know, in the West, it probably is a little bit easier to, to do that, assuming you fail and you move on to the next one and, um, uh, you know, causes some, some, some issues there. I think the other thing too, and someone brought this up on a podcast one time, which was, um, healthcare can be a pretty big deterrent for entrepreneurs and their willingness to take a risk. Right. Um, so speaking to someone in the UK, you know, they were like, wow, Dwayne, what they found fascinating was like, I had no idea how you started your own company when you don't have, when, when, when healthcare on the oh, public market insurance. is, yeah. yeah, health insurance. Yeah, yeah. Is, is not easy to come by. And I, I didn't really realize it until, um, someone brought it up on the podcast and said, hey, you know, for me, it was easy because I have it no matter what, uh, but for you, it was difficult. And then for me, it was even more of a difficult situation because, um, my wife doesn't work, uh, she doesn't work full time. She works PRN, right? So we definitely had that discussion and, and didn't even really think of it until someone brought that up, but that could probably be another pretty big deterrent, um, for entrepreneurs. You know, that's, uh, that's actually come up. That's okay. actually come up in discussion with some, um, mm -hmm. not with a particular founder, but trying to get co-founders and, and hire, you know, your first hires. Yeah. If you don't provide, you know, health insurance benefit, that's, that's like, you know, in America, that's like not providing, I don't know, not providing washrooms at the workplace or something like right. that. It's, it's kind of like yeah. one of these, one of these basic things that you absolutely need, um, because of the perils of what would happen if you're uninsured. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What are, what are maybe some of those other gaps that, um, startups from the human side, right? Which is like these er early stage startups, you're raising a finite amount of money, right? To get to your next valuation, your next inflection point, the next, the next milestone that's going to make your valuation go from, from six to 60 or six to 30, whatever it is. Right. Um, you know, how, what are some of those other gaps? Like I said, from a human side that these, that you see these early stage startups go through and how do they handle it? Is it fractionalizing? Is it giving away equity? Is it, it depends and it's both. You know where my answer is going to be. Um, <laughs> it, it, it depends and it's both. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I think it also depends on the geography in which you're investing. Some geographies yeah. have an abundance of one kind of talent and a deficiency of another kind of talent. Yep. Um, you know, I, it, it, and not to, you know, perpetuate stereotypes, but I think it's actually true. Um, you go to Eastern Europe, there's an abundance of technical talent a real abundance mm -hmm. of technical talent in, in Southeast Asia, there's, there's a gap of technical talent. Um, I'd say in, in the U S actually, there's a lot of really good talent across all disciplines, but limited worldview. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, 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 you know, there's a mix of all of the above, no matter, you know, wh where you go in the world. Um, so the, the, the challenges figuring out how to bridge that particular yeah. deficiency, depending on what you're doing and where you're located, because, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the skill sets you need, the talent that you need to commercialize a platform 
which might have a SaaS business model and might not necessarily need regulation is, is super different from building a clinical grade IOT that's sold unit by unit. Um, mm. You know, the, the intricacies of QMS systems and, you know, regulatory consultants and all that is, is really difficult. And, and one of the challenges, sometimes you can't even hire a consultant because you don't know what good is, you don't know what good looks like. And this yeah. is where, oh, yeah. this is where having good advisors, having good investors who've been through this themselves can add a little bit of value. Like maybe their knowledge of how to write a 510k application is a little bit out of date, or maybe they've never gone deep enough in their own ventures to, to do it, but at least they can recognize what good looks like, or maybe in their past lives, they've worked with some folks that uh, they trust and, and are reliable. And this can be the same across, you know, IT outsourcing. It could be across, you know, business development um, managers. It could even be a, across senior executives that can act as kind of like the, the adult supervision for some of the less experienced founders. So there, there, are, there are so many, you know, no startup is perfect. No startup has the yeah. perfect set of talent. And you just have to be able to rapidly identify where some deficiencies are and see if you have a way to either guide them or plug the gaps for them. Yeah, I mean, that's on our project method consulting team, you know, that's, that's what we're aimed to do. We're also, you know, sometime where I didn't really understand how valuable it was until we started consulting, but you know, I, I spend some of my consulting time just helping our startups figure out who the right partners are, right? And and especially in that regulatory quality, reimbursement, biocompatibility, clinical commercialization, right? Some of the people who are going to actually, you know, do some of that for you, um, you know, that was my industry I came from. So it's yeah. pretty easy for me to cut through the BS. And, and that's... I didn't really understand how valuable that was to startups until we started consulting oh, for companies. Supremely. Yeah. Supremely. Yeah. yeah. Um, awesome. All right, Joseph. Um, I don't have any other questions. Um, is there anything else we missed in closing that you wanted to address? Um, not, not really. Maybe just a, okay. a plea to the, to the startups that are out there to consider taking all the valuable things that you're innovating and just thinking about, who else it can benefit that might be non-obvious um, that, you know, might make a big difference. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so I will include uh, Joseph's LinkedIn. I'll include Verge's website. Uh, so people have that information if they want to get a hold of him, um, you can. Uh, with that being said, Joseph, hang on for one minute. But uh, thank you so much for doing this and, and, and sharing some of that information today. Oh, it's been a pleasure and an honor. Thanks a lot, Dwayne, for having me. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at Thanks for listening and have a great day.